Ey, ey, presta atención. Ah, rock en español. I am sure you know the songs from bands like Soda Stereo, Caifanes, Los Prisioneros, Maldita Vecindad, and likely many, many others. These are songs that you have found along the way and have become part of your life's playlist. Perhaps you first learned about these songs from your parents, your tías, tíos, or if you are from a certain age, <coughs> meaning over 30 or over 40 or maybe over 50, uh, you came of age with a whole rock and español soundtrack. These songs have made you sing, have made you dance, but what about the lyrics? What about the context in which these songs were created? What do they say? Well, in this podcast series, we'll discuss that a bit. Okay, not a bit. We will be discussing a lot of history of Latin America and also of Los Angeles and how rock and español plays a big part in this history. Soy Jorge Leal, historiador en la Universidad de California, Riverside. Y esto es The Discursive Power of Rock en Español and The Desire for Democracy. O El Rock en Español y el Deseo Democrático. Para un título más corto. Así que acompáñenme a este primer episodio. Episode 1. As a music genre, Latin American rock and roll has long been associated as part of the so-called counterculture and also a position of politics in different Latin American countries. Yet, most of the songs and the bands which we know and gained popularity both in Latin America and also in US Latinx communities were not overly political. To think about this a little bit more, let's start at the beginning. Well, there are actually many beginnings. So let's set the stage to think of Latin American history in the 1980s. And to do so, let's listen to this version de Música Ligera. Música Ligera was originally from Argentina Soda Stereo. And this version is by the students de la Escuela Miramonte in South LA.
So let's start with Soda Stereo. They come out of uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina, the capital of the country, in the early 1980s. And by the mid-1980s, uh, they found an audience in Mexico. And at the time, many Mexicans who lived in the biggest cities of, uh, of the country had grown disenchanted with the ruling institutional revolutionary party, that's the PRI, which had severely curtailed welfare policies in favor of a more neoliberal economic model that proved, frankly, economically disastrous for many Mexicans. Hence, many everyday people, in addition to musicians and other cultural producers, among them members of uh, rock bands, began to advocate for an apertura democrática in Mexico, so the democratic opening that would allow opposition of political parties to challenge the PRI and their long role. The PRI, uh, this party, uh, governed Mexico for over six decades. So they had a monopoly of power over the government and many of the uh, nation's affairs. And concurrently, at the same time, many Mexican families affected by this economic crisis that develops in Mexico in the 1980s are compelled to migrate to the United States seeking better financial outcomes and stability. So this helps us understand why some immigrants from Mexico already knew about the songs of Soda Stereo uh, here in Los Angeles who, uh, where the band eventually made their way in the late 1980s. Oh, back to the beginning of Soda Stereo. Uh, they're forming early 1982 by three college students back then in Buenos Aires, Argentina. They were going to college. Uh, Gustavo Cerati, the singer, Zeta Bosio, the bassist, and Charlie Alberti, the drummer. The band became quite famous throughout the, that decade of the 1980s, uh, first in Argentina and then throughout several countries in Latin America. They became one of the most known bands uh, and also solo artists uh, from that decade. This is the decade that we can begin to see different bands from and, and singers um, from different parts of uh, Latin America being defined under one uh, umbrella term, which is rock and español. Uh, it's a title that identify and group this music and also performances by a common language, el español, and also the geographic origins of the artist, Latin America. But soon, we would see that being extended to US Latinx communities. Along with many elements of expressive culture, rock music was heavily censored and disdained in the Americas by different political regimes which ruled these different nations in the 1970s and 80s. In the case of Argentina, where Soda Stereo um, are from, the country was under a ruthless regime uh, led by a military junta that ruled Argentina between 1976 and 1983. This military-led government applied direct censorship against the broadcasting of rock and roll songs, both in English and Spanish, under the pretext that the songs of this music genre embedded subversive messages aimed to instigate the youth. And although Soda Stereo was formed in 1982, at the height of the control of the military junta, see I said it all in Spanish right there, the band's lyrics rarely address uh, politics in an overly way. While the band had to resort to performing in small and ill-equipped, often clandestine clubs throughout Buenos Aires, 
as most of the Argentinian rock artists did at the time. The, the trio, it's, uh, so the stereo themselves, did not face direct state-directed censorship or persecution, unlike other bands. Rather, so the stereo, along with many of the Argentinian rock musicians at the time, became the unexpected beneficiary of this state censorship against rock music. How and why? Well, the rock music that was produced and performed by British and American artists and sung in English was censored by the Argentina military junta. This occurred at the onset of the Falcons War, or La Guerra de las Malvinas, in which the Argentina mil military junta entering a direct military conflict with Great Britain over a remote and, frankly, sparsely populated archipelago of islands in the South Atlantic, which had long been the possession of the United Kingdom, but that Argentina had contested and claimed to be part of their nation. In 1982, this military junta ordered the invasion of the Falcon Islands as it sought to reassert the legitimacy and also they thought it was going to be a very popular uh, position to take um, to show their military might and force against the United Kingdom, which was a fading empire then. The generals who led this uh, military junta in Argentina, they mistakenly thought that England would not retaliate um, and instead they would be able to just uh, get these islands uh, under Argentinian control. Also, domestically, they thought that they would be able to unify Argentina's population in support of um, this military incursion and to try to uh, paper over or distract from Argentina's chronic dire economic and political conditions at the time. Many of the dissidents or the opposition um, against this military junta was heavily repressed um, and deadly so. Uh, the military junta engaged in a so-called dirty war where many of these uh, people who opposed them were disappeared and killed. So the Argentinian military thought that by doing this military incursion into some um, islands in the South Atlantic, they would be able to reverse um, the way people thought of um, their government at the time. What they didn't foresee is that the United Kingdom would want their islands back. As the military conflict escalated into a full um, war and the United Kingdom began to assert its uh, military superiority in the battlefield, the military junta prohibited the broadcasting of any English language music on Argentina's airwaves. The prohibition of rock was specific to language, not to music genre, which had been in the, done in the past. So, in order to keep music in the airwaves of Buenos Aires radio stations that used to play American and British uh, rock and roll, radio stations began to broadcast songs by Argentina's own rock bands that substituted the songs by this more popular English and American artists. This was an unexpected opportunity for Argentinian bands such as Soda Stereo, that they began to be heard by a national audience. This was an audience that 
not only wanted to distract themselves from with the music from the news of the war, but were actually very worried that the war was going to come home to the streets of Buenos Aires. So even as a limited type of entertainment, these songs gave some sort of freedom from that authoritative and brutal military regime that had killed and disappeared thousands of Argentinos and Argentinas that were suspected of opposing this military regime um, during the Dirty War. So by June of 1982, La Guerra de las Malvinas, the Falcon War, was decisively lost by Argentina. And this led to a weakening and ultimately ouster of their military regime. Um, and after that, Argentina experienced a period of cultural aperture promoted by the party that came into power in more or less democratic elections um, in 1983. And that was the radical party. First time in Argentina that democratic elections were hosted in more than a decade. This radical party was supported by more middle-class members, yet they supported the arts, culture, and also education. As part of their platform, they rescinded the censorship laws elected by the military regime, and also a ban for English language music, which was eventually returned. But by then, the songs of Soda Stereo had already received heavy national rotation in Argentina, this expanded their um, fan base, which at the beginning was merely people in Buenos Aires, so now they had a national audience. As a result of this popularity, the band signs a record contract with Sony Music, and this allows them to also publish, edit their records elsewhere, first in nearby Uruguay, then in Chile, and then in Peru they proved to be a groundbreaking act because they began to do something which at the time was nearly inconceivable. Not only their records were already in store in different um, nations in Latin America, but they began to tour constantly and extensively through these different nations of the Americas. For each record release, Soda Stadium carried out months-long tours, performing throughout different cities, and every tour they started including other countries in their itinerary. So if at first they were just playing Uruguay and then nearby Chile, they added Peru, later on they added Ecuador, Colombia, and Venezuela. Um, by 1987, the band had finally reached the northernmost country in Latin America, that is Mexico. According to Gustavo Cerati, Soda Stereo's singer and frontman, Visiting Mexico for them was an opportunity to expand their reach for their band, but also as a sign of, of adventure. Why? At the time, very few Latin American bands would tour. And if they did, they would tour only within their nation. Argentina, in this case, they would play Buenos Aires and perhaps Rosario, Mendoza, two or three of the major cities, and that was that. For Soda Stereo, going to Mexico meant not only performing in the capital, Mexico City, and perhaps Guadalajara, but the sense of adventure for them compelled them to start performing in smaller cities. Aguascalientes, Veracruz, and eventually they made it to the U.S.-Mexico border with legendary shows in 
Mexicali en Tijuana. Mind you, at the time, the production of live shows was non-existent or very limited to regional Mexican. Yet, Sol Estéreo and their inventive production crew found creative and ingenious ways to stage shows throughout small cities in Mexico. Sometimes it would be dance halls. In Colombia, for example, salsódromos, where mainly salsa would be played, or in Lienzos uh, de Charro, Plazas de Toro, yes, ball rings. In, that was the case in Mexicali and Tijuana. So this is how Soda Stereo and their music that perhaps was not the most political became a voice for a generation eager to expand the definition of democracy in their everyday life. We'll take a break now, but when we come back, we'll discuss Los Prisioneros and Chile. This is the discursive power of rock and español and the desire for democracy. No Decimos lo que sabes, pero sabemos cómo hablar. Es como rock and roll, pura música basura. Un poco transformada para que suene igual. Pintamos el mono, pero no está lo mismo. Plagiando y copiando como todos los demás. Elvis, sacúdete en tu cripta. We are Sudamerican Rockers. Well, in Argentina, the military junta rose from 1976 to 1983. In Chile, the neighbor nation to the west was also ruled by a repressive military regime. In 1973, the military overthrew the left-leaning government of Salvador Allende. Soon, General Augusto Pinochet took power and ruled Chile for 17 years. Chile's military government also rolled with violence. There were over 3,500 disappeared, 2,000 people executed, and thousands of political prisoners. Moreover, these conditions of violence and repression forced thousands of people to flee to exile to other countries in Latin America, Europe, and the US. It was in 1983 when another trio of young dudes, this time Chileans, met in college in the outskirts of Santiago de Chile, the country's capital. And it was during their college days that Claudio Narea, the guitarist, Miguel Tapia, the drummer, and Jorge Gonzalez, the singer and the bassist, decided to form a band, and they called it Los Prisioneros. It was also during their early college days that they witnessed I realized the repressive nature of the military government. Los Prisioneros' songs reflected on Chile's harsh realities. They discussed the economic inequalities, the problems of classism, also the problems of racism against indigenous peoples in Chile. Yet, their songs cannot be classified as full-on explicit protest songs. We have to acknowledge that there was a genre in Chile and, and in other places in Latin America where singers and performers of La Nueva Canción was the explicit protest music. It was the most, most open musica de protesta. 
Cat, while not being a full protest band, Los Prisioneros Music became part of the soundtrack for marches and protests, first against Pinochet in the 1980s, and in the ensuing decades, different generations have continued to embrace Los Prisioneros songs in their marches, in their protests, all the way to 2018 and in the near present. This protest and this um, activism in the desire for a more democratic Chilean society. Also in time, Los Prisioneros songs have become true rock and español anthems throughout Latin America. We can even think of Tren al Sur as an immigrant anthem in Los Angeles. We will talk much more about this song in a later episode. Now, let's take a break. And up next, we'll talk about 1980s, Mexico, and El Rock. Argentina did not have a military dictatorship, yet the country was ruled by one single political party. That would be the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI, by its initials in Spanish. So the PRI held a rather effective, yet not efficient, corporate model of government that during decades benefited many sectors of Mexican society, or rather the elite of the sectors. And this was at the cost of true economic parity for most Mexicans, and also at the cost of meaningful political participation or true cultural variety in Mexican society. In the 1960s, with the appearance of American rock and roll and its embrace by Mexican society of rock and roll, the genre helped vocalize a broader, yet subtle, rebellion that would question the Mexican familiar, religious, and political status quo advocated by the free. This led to influential members of Mexican society to associate rock and roll with the Mexican student government of 1968, which demanded more meaningful political participation by students, young people, but also different members of society. This student movement reached an apex on October 2nd at the Plaza Tatelolco, when a massive march of students was heavily and brutally repressed by hundreds of undercover government agents who opened fire on this large demonstration, killing dozens of students. In the aftermath of Tlatelolco and in the years following Tlatelolco, the Mexican state persecuted and targeted rock and roll and the youth cultures associated with the music genre as he perceived them to be threat, a threat to the state. So El Rock Mexicano went underground with musicians and fans trying to avoid censorship or arrest for playing or listening to songs that were deemed as subversive. But in the 1980s, El Rock 
reappear as part of the democratic aperture efforts by different members of Mexican society, which demanded greater political and cultural participation. Throughout the 1980s, there were rumblings among everyday people, Mexican intellectual circles, and also cultural producers, which included rock and roll musicians. These rumblings articulated oppositional messages and also explicit stances against the pre-regime, even under threats of being censored or persecuted. So why in the 1980s there was this growing discontent by Mexican society? Well, this was the result of the disenchantment with the pre-government and also its inept handling of the country's economy. After decades of economic growth from 1940s to the 1960s, which was particularly boosted by Mexico's oil exports, the pre-monopoly on power began to unravel. Prior to the 1980s, the pre funneled a significant amount of the capital generated by this oil production into large public works and also infrastructure projects. However, everyday Mexicans began to resent the growing inequality that resulted from the priest uh, practices that favored and created an entrenched elite that captured most of the wealth and capital from this economic expansion fueled by oil, no pun intended, while we widening the income inequality for the rest of the population. So how bad was this inequality? This led to one of the most unequal patterns of income distribution in the world, where by the 1980s, the richest percent of Mexicans enjoyed incomes over 50,000 times greater than those on the border sectors of the population. This facade of unending prosperity came to a halt in 1982, when rampant public deficit, high levels of foreign debt, and the falling price of oil led to a major peso devaluation, in which the national currency of Mexico lost more than half of its value. The 1982 financial crisis in Mexico spurred a reaction from the creditors, including U.S. financial institutions, the international Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which compelled the PRI to impose austerity policies, drastically cutting much of the social services and investment in public infrastructure. These measures very quickly led to high inflation, little growth, and high levels of unemployment. Mexican workers' wages also stagnated as the Mexican state divested from the economy, leading analysts to refer to the 1980s as Mexico's lost decade. However, it was the humanitarian and governmental crisis that resulted in the aftermath of the 1985 earthquake in Mexico City that proved to be the turning point for the social and political life of the country in the last year of the 20th century. The devastation of the earthquake proved paralyzing for the PRI and also its attempt to control power while trying to provide for the needs of its citizens during this cataclysmic event. According to scholars and political observers, 
when the Mexican government proved unable to help its own citizens, it was the solidarity of Mexico City's residents which propels the beginning of a more participatory citizenship, first to help each other out during the earthquake. And this led to citizens seeing themselves as part of civil society, a society that could provide for itself, and also a more forceful advocate for a true democracy in form of a multi-party. While excluded from power, there had been a long-standing existence of a vibrant opposition of political culture in Mexico City's working class and poor neighborhoods that protested constantly. This predated the 1985 earthquake, but 1985 proved to be pivotal for the inclusion of the Mexican middle class in this protest culture. They saw the devastation and also they saw the ineffectual government response and they too sought to change the government towards something much more participatory. So this is the period where we see the emergence of bands like Maldita Vecindad, Caifanes, and Café Tacoa, among many others. And this also coincides with the decline of the pre-rule in Mexico. Many people who had not done so before began to organize, began to march, began to protest, began to be involved in civil society, but also politics. Others advocated through their cultural and intellectual productions, such as songs, writings, and magazines. Yet, thousands of Mexicans and their families were compelled to migrate into the U.S. during the 1980s from Mexico to seek a more stable economic livelihood, something that the PRI and its austerity policies were unable to offer. In the next episode, we will explore how these migratory conditions also brought rock and español to Los Angeles, and how immigrants from Latin America, as well as U.S.-born Latino and Latinas, embraced rock and español as a way to belong and also to advocate for more democratic societies, both in Latin America and the U.S. In this episode, we heard a version of Musica Ligera performed by the students of Miramonte Music Program based in the Miramonte School in South Los Angeles. We also heard We Are South American Rockers by Los Prisioneros and Maldita Vecindad with Apañón and Mojado. This has been The Discursive Power of Rock en Español and The Desire for Democracy o El Rock en Español y El Deseo Democrático. I am Professor Jorge Leal, historian at UC Riverside. This podcast features the collaboration of Jose Vergara, director of the Miramonte Music Program, and the students who are part of the Miramonte Mother Band. We're also thankful for the support of the University of California Humanities Research Institute. This project is also supported in part by the University of California Office of the President, MRPI funding. Gracias por escuchar, and until next time.
partir. 